0: This is Interpreting Wine host and founder Lawrence Francis welcoming you to this my Willamette Valley winemaker special. Across these 20 episodes recorded in quickfire fashion in January 2020 I got to meet a broad selection of people making wine in the region both a variety of winemaking scale from the micro to the macro and also different focuses that include different aging vessels, different grape varieties, sparkling wines, and of course different interpretations of Pinot. Episodes are going to be released in the order that they were recorded, so you'll get to be a virtual guest on the tour. Two things you can do to help spread this series even further. One is to subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already, either where you're listening or on your favourite podcast platform. And the second, the one that's really going to help push this out there, is to head to interpretingwine.com slash iTunes and leave a review letting me know what you think. A genuine huge, huge thank you in advance. Today's episode of the Willamette Valley Winemaker Special features John Groeschal of Groschow Cellars. In what is the 20th and final episode of this very special series, John tells us his origin story and transition into the world of winemaking before taking us on a deep dive into the origin of the fruit he uses for his wines and giving us an overview of his range of wines before sharing with us his future vision. Enjoy!
1: But my beginning was really in the restaurant in in Oregon, Uh, Willamette Valley, or right here in Portland. Uh, I grew up here, Um, but I also had the uh, good fortune of living in France when I was younger. Uh, I was racing bicycles, uh, living in the Loire Valley, uh, as well as a Paris suburb. But those weren't so much informative of wine, wanting to follow wine as a path, it's more of just seeing wine as part of life, seeing it as part of every celebration, every meal. When there was a team victory, uh, there was wine or champagne. And uh, But because I was trying to become a professional athlete, I wasn't drinking a whole lot of wine. We were drinking it here and there. Um, but uh, it, it was uh, formative in, in a more cultural way. Uh, but when I realized that my goal of being a professional cyclist was not going to happen, I came back to Portland and I started working in restaurants, uh, or started back working in a restaurant. And uh, originally I thought the, the idea was maybe to go in to learn to be a chef. So I've always loved cooking. I, I've had the good fortune of having a mother who, who was an excellent cook, and I spent a lot of time in the kitchen with her. Um, so uh, I started working on the service side of a restaurant and, and kind of eyeballing the, the, the kitchen and very quickly gave up on that concept because the culture and lifestyle did not suit who I was. Uh, so uh, because I lived in Portland and worked in a fine dining restaurant that, uh, where a lot of winemakers dined, I started pestering people with questions and, um, about, about the vineyard and winery. And what happens when you ask a, a winemaker a lot of questions is you, you get offered the chance to work for free. Uh, volunteer <laughs> come help us bottle come help us prune come help us do this and that so I started doing that um and uh really loved the work uh so I hatched a plan to move to California work harvest and then maybe work in restaurant in San Francisco and then head to UC Davis that was the uh the goal um but uh, that plan was very quickly thwarted by a relationship um, that, uh, that had reignited right before I left for California. And so after nine months in California, worked a harvest, was tending bar in a nice restaurant in San Francisco, I chose to move back to Portland, but the goal, the goal was still there.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, so I came back and I immediately started working harvest and such. In uh, uh, Willamette Valley, first at Erath Vineyards, uh, which is which was great, uh, but also uh, because it was it was a large winery where I w- learned a l- how to do a lot in very little space. Um, it wasn't highly detailed winemaking; it wasn't anything about the vineyard. It was making grapes into wine. Um, but from there, I realized what I needed to do is work for a small winery. And I had the good fortune of landing uh, a, a job with uh, Doug Tenell at Brickhouse Vineyards. So, um, and that was uh, incredibly formative because it was working in the vineyard and the winery and learning really what it was all about. Because up until that point, I'd only seen grapes, uh, you know, sorted, fermented, aged, and, and turned and bottled. I, I hadn't seen the vineyard and understood. Had no understanding understanding of it before that point, and that's where I learned the most. Thank you. Uh, so, yeah, after four years there, I I started my own business, and now I'm here. So we started in 2002. Uh, honestly, it was maybe a bit on the early side. I I didn't have an an accurate idea of what exactly I wanted to create. All I wanted to do is make really good Pinot Noir. And beyond that style, I, I didn't have a full concept. But uh, we we had a, a successful harvest 2002. Uh, we made 300 cases of wine of all wine, of Valley Pinot Noir a blend of four different vineyards, and um, we we made the choice of um, of uh, blending it all together into one wine. We didn't want to come out of the gate having a bunch of different wines and and, it, and it, it 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 worked out nicely um, you know for me um, the goal has always been to make wines that are more food oriented I, I like the food with wine concept uh, I, I worked in restaurant and it's always trying to be that uh, food oriented wine but I didn't really understand exactly how where I wanted to go when I started um, now we're making over 10,000 cases of wine and um uh, it, it we got here not it wasn't the original even it wasn't a, even after five years it wasn't my goal it just kind of happened that way but uh, over time you know we've uh, we I'd say the first five years uh, was kind of learning what I wanted and then the next few years was learning how to, Get what I wanted, and and really the last five years is being, or well, last eight years is like okay. Now we're we're just keep going. Um, but um, I'd also say that um, because I I started with um, uh, the, within the restaurant industry, uh, I didn't come into this business. Uh, with deep pockets. So value has always been a very important thing for me. I always wanted to create wines that, that, that punch above their weight, that give you more than you were going to expect for that price point. Um, and trying to make wines of value that just are not manufactured. Uh, I think, uh, so many of those wines that, that show, um, or that have that hit that 15 to $20 price point are just made in a large farm and it's they're kind of they're kind of dumb and and they're well they're products they're products uh, not unlike a Coca-Cola they're they're always the same they always hit the same marks they don't show vintage they don't show where they're from they just show they're a wine based product um, so we're trying to bring uh, a little bit more uh, of the earth and, and vintage into uh, valley places and that's partially why we had to grow so much is because we're very value oriented just took me a while to figure out the business side
0: (laughs) genuinely I do always respond very well when I hear uh, you know the the, those kind of two things being put together the wanting to make obviously the best wine that you can but then also bearing in mind value and and I've you know I've already said it on this trip and I've I've said it a number of times on the podcast I, I genuinely feel those are for me, the most important wines, full stop. They, they really are because they they just give anybody who you know has, a, I guess, a desire maybe that they never knew they had to to kind of trade up and give something you know diff, slightly different, you know, maybe slightly nicer label than they used to, or um, yes, yeah, slightly slightly nicer um, wine than that they might be used to. It just gives them a, a, an excuse, and, and I guess lets them feel okay about doing that you know without sort of blowing you know you can spend sixty dollars you can spend eighty dollars you can spend a hundred dollars and you'll get nice juice won't you but you know to, to to bring it within the reach of people i think is yeah it's a really admirable thing and it's something like yeah i say respond very well to um that being said i think it would be yeah great to sort of yeah hear you you kind of riff i guess on the the fruit really that's that's going into those wines, you know, it's it's not an insignificant amount of uh, wine that you're producing for for those exact reasons that right. you mentioned. Um, so yeah, where's it coming from? Maybe as I've been doing with most people on on the tour is just sort of yeah, giving them the opportunity to talk to the terroir, you know, whatever that word means, be it geography, be it soil, you know, what's going on in the in some of the areas. Again, it can be at a fairly high level in the areas where this fruit is being sourced from.
1: Okay. Well, for, for the, uh, the large blend, the, the commuter cuvee, as we call it, um, actually, let me grab, I have a bottle with me. Um, it's got a bike on it, on the label, which speaks, of course, to my past, uh, bike racing and bike riding, as I still do. Uh, but also, it's, it's, it's very Portland. <laughs> but um, uh, this wine is is a blend of, gosh, I think probably 11 or 12 different vineyards this year. 2018 vintage. Uh, we bottled just under 8,000 cases of that wine. Um, so we're hitting... Oh, um, well... We're hitting a lot of sub-AVAs of the Willamette Valley. So it is very much a Willamette Valley melange. Um, Because of this price point, which it retails for around $20 US, uh, some places a little less, some places a slightly more, you know, it's it's an interesting web of uh, distribution. Um, We are not working with some of the A sites. The sites, uh, they're... uh, and Dundee Hills, uh, Ribbon Ridge, and so forth. These, uh, uh, we have some sites that are fairly low elevation. Um, But we also have some very old, well, one of which is only for this uh, bottling. Um, It is over 30-year-old vineyard, but it's not in a great area. And when the vines get to that age, they really... um, uh, they start limiting themselves quite a bit, too. Um, they're, they're not uh, as precocious and, and reactive. Uh, uh, they don't have nearly as much vigor issues as a younger vineyard and the, the thicker soiled areas. Um, but uh, that, is, that is a vineyard that's only in the Limit Valley. It's called Cochrane. Nobody's ever heard of it. I don't even remember how I got in touch with these people, but I've been working with them since 2011, I believe. Um, but um, there I've been able to buy uh, excess grapes from higher-end vineyards, too, because uh, in years like 14, 2014, 2015, 2017 and to a lesser extent 18 we've had large yields uh, in our vineyards and we've been able to uh, buy some grapes at the end of harvest that after they've met their contracts uh, I just n- know enough people uh, after been, being in the business for 18 years where they, they'll they come to me uh, first and, and they, they know it uh, will be in good hands so um, we're able to hit some nicer vineyards in the Olamite Hills and Chehala Mountain sub-AVAs as well. So, but you know, there's no specific terroir other than Willamette Valley. It is both uh, it is both volcanic soils it, as well as sedimentary soils as well as uh, some very thicker flood flood soils. And you can higher vigor vineyards. You can make. Good wine out of without adding a bunch of junk to the wines. I mean, there are so many products you can add, and a lot of people approach high yield, uh, low elevation sites by uh, adding a lot of oak adjunct, adding a lot of enzyme, adding a lot of polysaccharide, and so forth. All these things you can add to it, but um, but if you keep your yields proper and you expose a fruit properly you can really get not top quality grapes but very good quality grapes without uh, selling your souls to the devil uh, in the wine store wine wine supply store winery supply yeah yeah okay. but um we the style of wine we make with that, you know, we we definitely are trying to pick things on the earlier side uh, to get that kind of crunchier style of fruit, not not a big sweet, supple style of fruit, but more. I like to use the the analogy of like the, uh, the nectarine you have on your counter in the summertime, and you 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 pick it up and you you think, no, tomorrow, tomorrow it's going to be right. That's the fruit we want. We want the fruit that's not ready today. Uh, We want that, yeah, that very crunchy and um, uh, energetic style to the wines. Um, Oh, wait. Those french fries.
0: (laughs) Sorry. Um, And uh,
1: the the Sorry, I lost my train of thought because yeah. of the French fries. <laughs> yeah, <I'll laughs> Edit. No. i edit, yeah. <laughs> I but um, so, yeah, we want that crunchy style. We we ferment uh, f- at fairly cool temperatures, and we really try to limit the extract. We don't want to, like, pound the wine uh, uh, too much because we're also not going to age it very long, and we don't use any new oak. So we only age it nine and a half months. Um, We use no new oak, but 70% of the wine is in barrel, uh, and it's all French oak, but the barrels are between three and eight years old. Um, We also um, uh, age now, well, sorry, 30% was in stainless, but this year we brought in some concrete into the mix because we're trying to bring in larger... Uh, vessels for aging of the wine that actually brings something to the wine. I mean, stainless steel is innocuous; it's the by that's what it's for. It's trying to be very direct and pure, and we like that part of the wine. But uh, concrete uh, has been used for ever in Europe, and uh, it brings a nice texture. Uh, and almost a salty presence to the wine that you just don't get in the U.S. because we have such acidic soils. We don't have those base uh, uh, lime soils you get in Europe. We have these acidic soils, and you just it's hard to find that texture in the wine. And the concrete tank brings a little bit to the wine, and I'm really excited about uh, for 2019 having that being a portion of our commuter cuvee and and the goal is to hopefully bring more and more of the concrete vessels into that wine to bring this uh bring that texture that we want in balance with the stainless steel and the the older oak yeah so the commuter cuvee is 85 percent of our production uh approximately uh with the other 15 percent we're making malon de Bourgogne, uh, we're making Pinot Blanc, we're making Chardonnay, and of course Pinot Noirs. Uh, you know, Milan, it gets such a bad rap uh, from Muscadet, although it's increasingly getting better and better rap, which is wonderful. But it's it's something that I've always loved that that great fresh oyster wine, mineral uh, and bright acids, a little limey. And we've been making it since 2012, but we've been refining what we've been doing every year. And I finally think I've hit the right, um, uh, for lack of a better term, recipe as far as the vessels I use for fermentation. Um, we're using concrete eggs uh, and uh, uh, acacia wood barrels uh, in this wine, as well as some neutral French oak. Um the concrete brings volume and the aforementioned saltiness from the concrete. Uh, it brings a, 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 a round, rich, lazy texture to the wine, but a, a little bit of a, a you know kind of calcareous saltiness. Uh, whereas the acacia brings this kind of a floral green uh, green in, in sorry it's always a hard word to use with wine even though it, it's very appropriate sometimes not, not in that negative kind of uh, um, uh, green bean or, or green pepper but um more like a like if you snapped a fresh tree branch off you know it has this raw green wood aspect to it um but it also brings more buoyancy to the palate and just again more volume i mean this wine which you're tasting right now is it's 11.8 percent alcohol but it feels like so much more richness despite the ph also being super low um uh, I think it's about 3.2. I want to say so. There's a, a, a fair amount of acidity in that wine, but the vessels we use and the, the with the lees stirring in the vessel, uh, well, at least with the concrete tank, it just kind of constantly keeps the lees in suspension. Um, it, it feels like a weightier wine than it is. Um, I spend way too much time on a wine that retails for eighteen dollars, but I love love the wine. <laughs> But um, but with, with the Pinot Noirs uh, that we make that are upper end, um, they're made quite differently from the commuter cuvee. Uh, the vineyard site sites are obviously. Uh, uh, higher elevation, thinner soiled, more struggle, you know, farmed for more intensity um, rather than volume. Uh, we, we pick a little bit riper, a little bit later. We ferment, usually with a fair amount of whole clusters in those wines, uh, vintage dependent. Warmer vintages get more, uh, cooler less, Uh but uh, that's mainly because those warm vintages, that, of which we get more and more of, um, tend to be the wines tend to be very fruit focused, and wines that are about fruit or all about fruit are just so boring to me. I like savory, I like texture, I like wines that have some cut and um, feel, rather than just you just keep talking about the fruit notes. Great you know fruit and oak notes are boring um, to me um they're uh i mean it's a, a huge part of it but it's just when it's all about that it's just not what i'm after so the the whole clusters are uh, a very uh huge part of the winemaking um uh with the the upper end Peter noirs and and we do you know single vineyards so site specific so we eola amity hills with zenith vineyard and bjornson vineyard uh, dundee hills with uh anderson family vineyard um we're always looking at wanting to do more single vineyards but it's always a a bit of a struggle in the marketplace because there's so many um i I would love to bottle every vineyard separately but it's hard to sell every single vineyard to a distributor and so forth so um but uh uh, the the showing a, a single place in a year is really what's the most intriguing to me it's this one vineyard one year and it's different every year slightly and that's what's cool and you can talk about the why that is and it's it's still a learning experience with, with the climate change we're seeing it's, it's trying to understand uh, it's it's not hot or cool years anymore. It's like it's when you got the heat, how much you got, and what was the soil mo- uh, moisture like at that point, and you know what are all the little factors, and are trying to really understand how uh, everything's being affected along the way. Um, yeah, Chardonnay. Uh, I'm sh- sorry, I'm just <laughs> jumping around here. <laughs> For Chardonnay, we definitely have a very old world style, like all our wines. We're uh, we we try to make things that are less about um just opulence and more about a little bit of temperance and prettiness and elegance uh we picked the chardonnay's grapes on the earlier side uh we do both single vineyard and a mix for a couple years doug has been nice enough to sell me some chardonnay at Brickhouse vineyards but uh not anymore
0: (laughs) but um
1: (laughs) But uh, we we ferment in barrel, uh, all French oak. Uh, we age on lees for, for eighteen months. Um, again, uh, we're we're bringing uh, a bit of a higher end winemaking to uh, lower price points. Uh, that longer time on lees, you know, picking early for low alcohols and bright acids and the right uh, uh, fruit quality. Um, You just build palate texture and weight through that extended surly aging. It's really amazing how much the wine changes, how these wines that are coming in in the mid-12s just feel so much more voluminous than they are. Uh, Well, not than they are, but than the the alcohol level would suggest is a better way of putting that, sorry. Um, And then... um, and limited amount of new oak, too. We're just using about uh, 25% at the most. Um, some of the wines are only about 6%. Uh, for the wine at Valley Cuvée, about 6%. And then yeah, the single vineyard, about 25%. So keeping keeping the oak as a, a flavor, but more from the, the, the buoyancy and uh, lift it gives the wine on the palate. It's not so much the flavor I want, it's the structure uh, and definition it brings to the wine. Yeah. And then the last thing we make more and more of is Gamay noir. Uh, I, I uh, when I was studying wines from a, a just enjoyment factor and working in a restaurant and really getting intrigued in wine, the best place to study, especially in the 90s was uh, Beaujolais I mean where you could get just beautiful you know Terroir driven wine for 15, 20 bucks. And, and it's gone up a little bit, but you can still find great value for 20, 25 bucks. Wines that are show place uh, more than hand. And uh, uh, we have try to bring that to uh, uh, the Gamay in the Willamette Valley, where we're doing three different single vineyards right now. Uh, two in the same AVA uh, in the Yola Amity Hills, Redford Weddle Farm and Bjornson, and the other one up in the Shahela Mountains AVA, and they're all very different. I mean, Redford Weddle Farm and Bjornson Vineyard, they're about maybe four miles apart, uh, but just uh, couldn't be more different. Redford Weddle on the east slope, very red cranberry pomegranate. Um, sweets, uh, floral spice. Uh, whereas uh, Bjornson Vineyard, higher elevation, faces southwest. Just, It's more like uh, baked. Uh, uh, gosh, I don't know. Some of it's like strawberries baked a little bit. They're just very strong and dark and firm. Uh, the tannic structure is huge. The acidity is always very high. Those wines sometimes are very... Actually, the 2018... I didn't bottle in the summer because I couldn't get it to finish mallow malactic because the pH was so low. <laughs> it just didn't want to finish. And I I think it's done now. I got to bottle it in next month. But, um, yeah. And then up in the Shihala mountain, the the 12 oaks estate is very blue fruited, very, very supple, very blue, very round and just more generous and easy. Um, all those, all three sites are volcanic soiled sites, but, uh, the, the thickness of the soil and the the composition and the, um, of the soil, as well as just the the, the, the climactic the, the weather factors, uh, just all bring different different styles to uh, to these three vineyards,
0: which is fun I, you know, I love the description there because yeah, I, I think in it, it almost feels like yeah, this is being the last interview. Uh, you know of the of the tour that I, that I'm on, and uh, you know the journey that the listener's been on. You know, you you you've taken us around, yeah, lots of different sites. There, this this kind of, you know, like this, yeah, eighty five percent is this kind of main production, fifteen percent is this kind of potpourri almost of all these different sites, and uh, but but yeah, kind of underpinned by on one side the, yeah that kind of the value and, and the accessibility but then yeah getting into kind of yeah, some of the some of the more serious uh, single site expressions and uh, yeah I just think it's a it's just a, it, it, that in of itself is 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 for me is is an important story because it's like yeah you're you're not I don't think as a winemaker you're not sort of compromised by making at different levels like that and and you know potentially making for a different type of consumer you know the person that's that's getting the single vineyards may not be the person that gets the commuter cuvee or they may be they may have the commuter cuvee. Midweek, and they have the other and special occasions and, they, you know, they, who, who knows? You know, they, I guess on some level you make these wines, you get the fruit, you do the best you can and you put it out there into the world. You know, once it leaves the cellar, it's, it's out there and it's in people's hands. So... Um, Uh, Yeah, I I, I really, I just want to sort of, I guess, really close off, you know, just in in terms of, you know, giving you, uh, really, as I've given everybody else uh, in the series, kind of the, you know, the voice, the floor, um, the opportunity just to, yeah, to kind of project forward, really, you know, and and, I think we've got a real strong sense of, your base now and, and what that kind of looks like now. And, and really, yeah, just just ask you to kind of, yeah, look into your crystal ball and, and look ahead, I guess, yeah, for you, for the region, for the grape varieties, you know, whatever sort of elements of that kind of, you know, feel closest and f- most front of mind in Jan 2020, just kind of, yeah, be, potentially be a bit speculative about that. For the region, uh, I think it's it's
1: going to see a lot more involvement here from Californians and from Frenchmen uh French people <laughs> um, because uh, one in California we for for those folks we have water <laughs> and we have uh we have land that's really well priced and we have um Uh, more heat than we did 20 years ago so we can hit their balance sheets in a better place as far as the amount of uh, money they can make off an an, an area of land or so forth from a a really a a businessy look uh, standpoint Um, but but um, the brand Oregon is getting more known slowly around the world um, and uh, I see it only growing in that regard. And, and you know, with the Burgundians, there's just a lot of people coming here because there's only so much land in Burgundy, and what little bit there is uh, is very expensive. Uh, it's hard to produce value there now. And if you want to grow your business, you essentially have to leave uh, Burgundy, and so that's why you're seeing more and more investment uh, in the U.S., uh, from from the vineyards there. Yeah, the Burgundians will bring more, uh, some expertise, but also different experience uh, to, to Oregon. Um, they'll have name and cachet with people that people in Oregon strive to get name with because we don't, you know, we're, what, a 55-year-old industry. And really, it's only been in the last 30 that we've been an in industry of some repute I mean really when Domain Druin came here I believe it was 88 um, that's when we really started getting on the world map but that was still a long build from there up to the point where we were well regarded around this country let alone the world Um, so uh, I see that growing the perception of Oregon wines in a lot of people's minds around the world uh, and the industry growing but in the short term, we have, um, you know, a lot of great uh, wineries producing uh, wonderful wines. And uh, it's it's still um, educating people as to where Oregon is and what it produces and what Pinot Noir is. And, you know, Oregon Pinot Noir is so different from what you see in Southern California or even uh, Northern California, um, so many people have an experience of Pinot Noir being that Californian style first and were a little bit different. So it's 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 still an educational process uh, and uh, it, it, it's only growing. For me, for Groshaw sellers, um, it's, boy, uh, for me, the, 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 the thing I would like to have is a vineyard it feels like I'm missing a leg on my chair uh, by not having one because for a long time I, I didn't want to I, I, it's too much work it's not um, uh, it's not my my knowledge base it's not my forte but um, over time uh, I realized just how much you leave behind to somebody else and um, I do get a level control with farming with our contracts, but I don't have ultimate control and I can't make quick changes with them. It's, it's a, it's, it's steering the ship, you know, analogy. It it takes a while longer and it's, uh, it's a financial conversation every time it is and so forth. But, um, if it were my own, I could really get to know everything, block, every plant, well, every block anyway, not plant, but t- to know the nuances of the vineyard, the changes in soil, the little bit difference in airflow, um, sun aspects, shading trees, all these little things that can really, uh, affect, uh, the ripeness or the style of wine that comes off a, a certain area. When I, when I worked for Brickhouse, I remember, um, Doug was uh, it was one harvest, like, I don't know, I guess 2001 uh, or something. But um, where we were picking down the middle of a block, uh, like he put a big piece of flagging tape down the middle of the rows that we are picking. It's like, we're picking from here to here. We're not going over here. And and it was, at the time, I was like, why? And then I was like, thinking about, oh, the aspect's a little different, the soil's a little different, and he just really wanted to capture that aspect on that day not like the whole section and uh but it took me a while to realize that and 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 now i want that level control that minutiae uh more but uh it's expensive (laughs) but it's also growing the commuter cuvee in addition to that i mean they're growing growing the value trying to bring more people uh you know wines uh of great value and again punching above weight so forth um you know just trying to bring great value to people and that show place that the show willamette valley um but yeah
0: the vineyard's more important (laughs) thank you so much john for sharing your time and your humor with us And editing this now in March 2020, it was an absolute pleasure to listen back to happier times. Do, of course, check out below for John's website. As I mentioned, this is the 20th and final installment of the Willamette Valley Winemaker Special. John's episode, number 399, will, of course, take its place alongside all the other episodes in the playlist, which you can find at interpretingwine.com slash wvwa. Given the recent turn of events and the challenges facing hospitality industry all over the world, I would encourage anybody linked to winemaking in the Willamette Valley to share either this playlist or individual episode numbers far and wide to ensure that the wonderful people and winemakers of the region are kept front of mind at this difficult time. At the time of recording, I know that many of the guests were organising home delivery, curbside pickup and takeaway options, And wherever possible, do please try to support local businesses. Because I think we all need good people and good wine at times like this. Signing off the series, I do just want to say another huge thank you to everybody at the Willamette Valley Winery Association, who took a punt on bringing me over from London to interview your winemakers. I really hope that the 20 episodes help everybody get through this challenging time, and that I'm able to visit again, revisit with old friends, and make new ones in the near future more so than ever do please let me know if there's anything that i can do for you you can find me on social media where i'm at interpreting wine on instagram and facebook at wine podcast on twitter or email hello at interpretingwine.com. see you next time